time, I got some last words from the man and the couple, and he told me that he loved me. And I got some words from the lady and the couple at another time, the last words I spoke with her, and they really broke my heart and disappointed me. You've got something of that in Malachi chapter 4. And I want you to imagine this. Let's imagine that you made a decision that beginning a year from now, a year from now, you were going to be silent for a decade. That's kind of a silly thing to imagine um, and uh, probably nearly impossible for most people uh, just because of the nature of life. But let's just imagine that you decided that a year from now, you were going to be completely silent for an entire decade. You've got a year to prepare for that. That means that in a year, you've got some last words that you're going to speak to the people that are most meaningful to you. What words would you speak? What words would you speak? What would you want to say? And is it possible that the words that you had, uh, the last words that you had decided to speak would give you a sense of frustration because you would feel so much more than what you could ever articulate in words. So what, what is it that you would say? If you had decided a year from now you were going to be silent for a decade, you had time to prepare. And then how important would those words end up being? How important would they be? That is the situation that you have in Malachi chapter 4. These are the last words God speaks to Israel and the world for 400 years until John the Baptist shows up in his ministry. The very last words that he would speak through a prophet to the world. He is silent after the last word of this chapter for 400 years. Uh, I, I, you know, God being who he is, he doesn't need to process things and he doesn't need to uh, think long and hard about things. But uh, I would imagine that what he says here, uh, being the last words for 400 years, not merely a decade, but four centuries, are rather important to him. And they communicate something of some urgency and even something of an emergency situation. This is what they would have to live with for the next 400 years. And I want you to read with me in Malachi chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1. For behold... The day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. They will leave them neither root nor branch. But you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, shall rise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse." There are a couple of things here found in this text that are the last words of Almighty God to the world for 400 years. First, there's the last Old Testament promise of joy. The last Old Testament promise of joy. That's verses 1 through 3, and the center of it 
is at the end of verse number two. You shall go out, or you shall skip, you shall leap. It's a bit more of a vivid word than merely go out. You shall leap, you shall skip, and grow fat like stall-fed calves. There is enormous joy that comes about as a result of this promise here. And I want you to notice this promise. Uh, there are abundant images used in just these three verses for Israel and their joy and the cause of their joy. I don't know if you noticed them or not, but there are images first of purification in verse number one. And then in verses two and three, there are images of hope in the text. Look at verse one. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. That makes sense, especially ancient ovens and current ovens as well. They're hot and there is something that is burning with them. And he goes on. And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. God is promising here to take all evil and all wickedness and burn it up as in an oven, and the result will be stubble. So he starts in the kitchen with an oven. He moves into the field where a crop is and turns it all into stubble. Stubble is what remains after a harvest has come through and tore up the place and harvested the crop. And so he leaves the oven, he goes into the field, and then he says, The day is coming, shall, uh, and the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. And so he goes to a tree or a plant that has roots and branches. And so it will burn them so much so that the, even the root and even the branch shall be burned up. And that's really what uh, you'd have to do without uh, modern chemicals in order to burn weeds and other undesirable plants and trees that may be around. You'd have to burn them. It reminds me of my grandfather. He didn't use uh, chemicals to destroy wasp or yellow jacket nest. His favorite thing to do was to take a newspaper and roll it up and set it on fire and put it right up against the awning of the house. Now, as a boy, that was exciting. I thought about that lately, and I thought, that's pretty dangerous. Only a grandfather could get away with it. But it was on his house. But he didn't use chemicals. He used fire. And that's the image that is used here. Fire is something that purifies. And it burns through. It cleanses what is in its way. And God is promising there is a day that is coming where that cleansing process would begin and where it would be consummated. So there are illustrations of purification. Then verses 2 and 3, they're illustrations of hope. Watch this. But to you who fear my name. Now I need to preach on this sometime or teach on it. And uh, to uh, define the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord sometimes is used in contexts that are upsetting and frightening. But often... The fear of the Lord happens to be used in contexts that are full of joy and hope and promise. And so fear um, is uh, not a phobia. Fear of the Lord is not a phobia. It's not like rounding a corner and seeing a rabid dog that's coming after you and charging your way. It's not that at all. Instead, the fear of the Lord is to be amazed and tremble in His presence. Psalms 33.8 uh, will help you with that. But it is to come before God and be so moved and amazed by who He is. You can't be casual. You can't be indifferent. You cannot be unaffected. You are amazed and in awe of Him. You stand amazed 
in the presence. And that's what it means to fear the Lord. Now, he goes then from the kitchen to the crop, to a tree, and then he goes to the cosmos or the solar system. The sun of righteousness, a reference to the coming Messiah, shall arise. And then he goes to the doctor with healing and then to the birds in his wings. So this burning sensation of the sun will heal and there will be healing that will accompany it. And you shall go out, so he goes to the barn, and grow fat like stall-fed calves. So these calves don't go amongst the stubble and forage for food. Instead, they're in a stall. They are well cared for, and they are fed in the stall, in a place of safety, a place of rest. They don't expend energy. They are fattened up in that place. They are happy. They're so happy, and they're so well fed that in verse 3, they trample over the wicked. Now, that's the last thing you'd expect a calf to do. But with the rising of the sun of righteousness and the feeding he performs in the stall, calves are able to pull even that off. Even the most humble person is included in this promise here in the text. And he says, For they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. So you've got two widely different phenomena that take place here in the text as a result of fire. And let me put it this way. On one hand, the fire that burns some heals others. And it's all wrapped up in the relationship that these have with the Son of Righteousness. For those who fear Him, His fire heals. For those who are proudly wicked, His fire burns, incinerates, and cleanses. And that's oftentimes the way it is in life. I have a love-hate relationship with the oven in our home. I do. I cook sometimes, and I'll use the oven every once in a while, and I am so clumsy that I burn myself nearly every time I work with an oven. It burns. But then, heat can also heal. Remember back in December, Luke had some eye surgery, and uh, at the last minute it was changed. His eye cleared up, so instead of cleaning out inflammation from the eye, the doctor went in, and he cauterized with a laser some of the blood vessels. So it healed. That's what we're talking about here. The very presence of God can do both. On one hand, it will burn and incinerate the wicked when he comes back in his second coming. But at the same time, precisely at the same moment, it rejoices the hearts of the children of God. This is the Old Testament's last promise of that joy, and it puts it on the future. The future coming judgment of the Son of God and the future coming joy and kingdom of the Son of God. So this is the Old Testament's last promise of joy. But then, that's not all. We also have here the Old Testament's last appeal to remember. Verse 4, remember. Remember two things. Verse 4, remember... Remember to look back at Moses. He says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Now, I don't know if you understand just how stunning in Malachi's context this happens to be. Malachi has been committed to taking a stand against his countrymen. He's taking a stand against the people of God all throughout the book of Malachi, as we have seen. 
He's preached, he's preached about marriage. He's preached against divorce. He's preached against idolatry. He's preached against Israel's arrogance. He confronts them on behalf of the Lord with sin. And they said, well, how do we do that? You know, like, it's unbelievable. How dare you confront us over these issues? And so they're, they're intensely arrogant, so they don't listen very well. And Malachi does that, and he expects them to conform to the law of God. Now, this is about the 5th century B.C., about 500 years, excuse me, 400 years before uh, uh, John the Baptist will come to the earth. Back 10 centuries before, a millennium, God gave the law to Moses. So from the time God gave the law to Moses till Malachi preaches it and demands and insists the people conform to the law of God, you've got a millennium, you've got a thousand years, and the implication is that the law that God gave to Israel a thousand years before is just as relevant in Malachi's day as in the day of Moses, and it is today, beloved. It is today. The Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, is repeated in the New Testament, every one of them. Now, the law about the Sabbath is modified because many of the Christians were slaves. They did not determine their schedule. They didn't determine when they could get off from work. And so some of them would worship on Saturday. Some would worship on Monday, Tuesday, through Friday. And so they had to be a bit flexible. And that flexibility is in the New Testament. And that's perfectly fine. People can meet for worship in this day when they, uh, when they can. But the point is this, they were to meet for worship. Uh, with that modification in mind, all of the laws of the Old Testament are repeated in the New Testament and they become the expectation of God on the Gentile nations. The Old Testament prophets applied the law to the Gentile nations, not just to covenant Israel, and expected the Gentile nations to conform to the law of God. Of course, many of them were doing that because it was on their heart to do. So he says, remember to look back at the law of Moses. And the point is, if it was wrong then, it's wrong today. God will not change no matter what happens to the common uh, view and the common consent of the people. The law of God stands, and it stands forever. His word will stand. The grass may wither, the, fle the flesh may fail, but the word of our God stands forever and ever. So remember to look back to Moses. But then remember to look forward to Elijah. Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. That's a great description of the ministry of John the Baptist, by the way. There are several ways to describe the Elijah in this text. Uh, Elijah would be symbolic. Uh, he says, um, uh, Behold, I'm sending Elijah. Some thought John the Baptist was Elijah. He said, no, indeed I'm not. And he was not Elijah returned. There was no reincarnation at all that took place there. But he was much like Elijah. Jesus said so in Matthew uh, chapter uh, 11, Matthew chapter 17, verse 11 as well. And so John the Baptist fulfilled much the same function. He fulfilled uh, much the same spirit. He had a similar message. He also, like Elijah, confronted kings with uh, the message he, in fact, John the Baptist was a prophet, much like Elijah. And Jesus honored him in that way. But then there is a second appearance of Elijah, not only symbolic, but second. Uh, Elijah did fulfill this text. Elijah came back. 
Jesus manifested himself in Matthew 17, verses 1 through 11, in all his apocalyptic and kingdom glory. He previewed for Peter, James, and John his great glory on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. The scripture says his clothing became as white, even whiter than any launderer on earth could make it. And the Father appeared in a cloud and confirmed him and said, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Well, that shook the teeth out of Peter's mouth, and so he wanted to build three tabernacles there. It's interesting. The Bible says Peter, not knowing what he said, said something. <laughs> and that's what Peter did. That, that was the powerful impact of that movement. Jesus there in Matthew 17 appeared in the glory that he would appear in his second coming. It was a preview of his second coming and the beginning of the apocalypse and the victory of the Son of God there in Matthew 17. And do you remember who appeared with him? Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus. Moses actually appeared there, confirming Jesus as the fulfillment of prophecy. Moses appeared also there because Jesus was a fulfillment of the law. That'd be terribly important in a gospel like Matthew, which is so rich with um, Old Testament references. And by the way, I think I've told you before, but um, Moses appeared with Jesus on that mount in Israel in the promised land. He was not allowed to go in the promised land back, in, um, back when he died in the book of Deuteronomy. God didn't let him go in because of his disobedience. But when Jesus showed up, Moses got to go to the promised land. And that's how we get into the promise, all the promises of God. We get there through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Moses was able to experience that. Don't, don't forget to remember to look forward then to Elijah. So there's a second Elijah. Some think that he is one of the prophets, uh, the two witnesses in Revelation 11, though they are not identified. Um, I don't know who they are in Revelation 11, but as powerful as these two witnesses are, I'm sure not going to mess with them. Then there is a dreadful reference here to Elijah in verse number five. Uh, I'm going to send Elijah before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Well, when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration and Elijah appeared, how was that dreadful? I'm going to tell you, if you're off in the corner and you're Satan and one of his demons, it scares the daylights out of you. It creates an awful lot of dread. And so the dread that is mentioned in this text is not necessarily towards the human race, though the wicked would be involved. It ends up being a dreadful day for the entire satanic kingdom when Jesus breaks loose in glory and previews his apocalyptic uh, vision and nature. And so it's a terrible, terrible, frightening thing at the Mount of Transfiguration for uh, demons and for Satan. So there's a dreadful nature to this. And then there's a devoted nature to it in verse 6. He will turn the hearts of fathers to children and hearts of children to their fathers. Of course, Elijah did that back in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 17 through 24, when he raised that boy from the dead. But the point I want to make here is, is that that's how John the Baptist prepared Israel for Jesus. He turned the hearts of fathers to their children and children to their fathers. When that happens, men and children are ready for Jesus. Now, there's an awful lot to say about women receiving Christ in other texts. That's just not in this particular text, so don't, don't feel neglected. But what I want to say to you is this. When I find a man that is zealous for his kids and is willing to sacrifice for them, 
I can win him to Jesus. There is something about having a heart for your kids that makes you much more open to Jesus. When kids have a strong relationship with dad, they've got a heart for him. You can win them. They're prepared for Jesus Christ. I don't know exactly what it is. There's probably some modeling that takes place there. I think God blesses that kind of heart as well. It says something about authority and the disposition of a, of a, parent, of a father to a child, a child towards a father. It is an enormous and remarkable thing. But I will tell you, when a man doesn't care about his kids, he's difficult to win to Jesus. When kids have a rebellious nature towards their father, in a contempt and disrespect, it's hard to win them to Jesus anytime. That's why you've got to win them when they're young. But this is what we find here in the text. Now, I want you to notice uh, here that God is active. He says, remember to look back to Moses. Remember to look forward to Elijah. There's a coming and dreadful day of the Lord. God is not sedentary. He's appealing to them. I'm going to be silent now for 400 years, but do not forget what I'm telling you. God is active. He's not sedentary at all. He keeps his people ready for the next movement of God, no matter how far into the future it may be. Now look at the last line of the last book of the last chapter in the Old Testament. Lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. With a curse. Curse. Curse is the last word in the Old Testament. John Phillips, the great expositor and commentator, commented this way on this last word in the Old Testament. Listen to what he said. Thus the Old Testament ends. The first book in the Bible, Genesis, ends with a coffin, Joseph's coffin. Isaiah ends on the note of judgment, as does Ecclesiastes and Lamentations. Finally, Malachi ends with the word curse. The rabbis, as they copied the Old Testament, sought to avoid the full force of this dreadful word curse by repeating verse 5 after verse 6. They couldn't stand to end the Old Testament with verse 6. So they would write after it and copy after it, verse 5, in some of their copies of the Old Testament and in their commentaries. But God did not want this word curse muted. He wanted it to wail out its woe down through the silent centuries, the 400 silent centuries. He wanted it to haunt the minds of men and to echo down the years. God wanted the Jew to find the word curse at the end of his Bible. Curse at the end of his Bible. What better preparation could there be for a new beginning in Jesus Christ? What better preparation could there be for the coming of Jesus who would not bring curse but would bring a blessing to all who believe? A curse or Christ, that choice was God's final message to the Old Testament Jew. I find it rather instructive 
that the book of Revelation is the last book of the New Testament as well. A curse or Christ? That's the choice. Now that's got to fuel our ministry. That's got to fuel our thinking. That's got to fuel our imagination and our contemplation of God. The liberal needs to hear, God is not indulgent and God does not change His law. It doesn't matter how your church votes. It doesn't matter the opinion of your professors in your seminaries, the publications from your publication houses. God does not change His view of theology, morality, sexuality, marriage, or anything else. He's not going to bend. He's not going to accommodate the compromise of the current age. So stop standing in the pulpit and saying He does. Do not mislead the people of God. God isn't going to change. To those who are rigid with right doctrine and right practice and right behavior, who have all these views, biblical, to the rigid, he would say, God isn't going to change either. Not only does he announce the curse, but he's always lifting up the Son of Righteousness with healing in his wings. And there is always hope for redemption to anyone who will humble himself before God and believe. That means we blow it wide open. We shape our word and we shape our message and we shape our ministry. We shape everything about our lives and about our churches and about our families in a way that shouts there is hope and the Son of Righteousness is on the way to do a marvelous work in hearts and lives. There is healing and of all places in His wings. Who's ever heard of such a thing? So much so that calves end up defeating the enemies of God. There is that kind of power for the most lowly in the kingdom of God. That's what the rigid need to hear. And thus ends the Old Testament. Father, it's been a good word. Oh, I'm so moved. And I am thrilled with this good news. And I think the rest of our people are too. And I want to pray that you'll put it powerfully on.